book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. Trust that you've been getting a few things out of this, this study here of, of Nehemiah. I uh, have thoroughly enjoyed it myself. And uh, so looking forward to it. Friday night service coming up at 7 o'clock. Keep that in mind. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 29. After him repaired Zadok, the son of Immer, over against his house. After him repaired also Shimei, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate. The keeper of the east gate. This morning, that is exactly what we're going to speak on, the East Gate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that you give us to gather again here at church. We thank you, Lord, for having a place, Lord, where we can come and, and comfortably, Lord, enjoy everything that is involved in in getting to this place where we're at right now in the ministry of your word. We thank you for Sunday school. We thank you for the song service. We thank you for the offering. But Lord, we, we want to hear from your word, Lord. So I pray that, Father, you'd be everything that we need you to be. Touch the streakstras that aren't here, Lord, that are there in Helena. Touch Sister Linda. She can't be here. Lord, we love and appreciate you in Jesus' name. Everyone said Amen. The first thing that I want to look at here this morning is, as, as we enter into another gate on Nehemiah's uh, wall here, the, the East Gate has so many different names that it's been referred to down through the pages of time. It's called the Shushan Gate. It's called the Mercy Gate, the Gate of Eternal Life. The gate called Beautiful, and as we read in our text here, the Eastern Gate. Today, if, if you would go to Israel, you would see it called the Golden Gate, the Golden Gate. The oldest gate that was used in the walls of Jerusalem is this particular gate, the Eastern Gate. I thought it interesting. I did a lot of, once again, studying and research and watched documentaries and things like that online. And what really fascinated me is the foundation pillars are still visible that were put in place by Solomon or Hezekiah. Yeah, you can still see them. They're just beautiful pillars in the bottom that are holding up that whole you know, structure. It, and, and they're so old, and, and yet you can see, you know, the, the walls have been destroyed, you know, down through times. That's what Nehemiah is all about, is building back up the walls and the gates. But you can see also that at, at, the, at the, the eastern gate, you can see some of the original stones that Solomon had quarried and, 
and placed there, there's a couple layers of them, the foundation pillars and et cetera are still authentic. They're still there, which I, I, I just think, man, I'd like to go there and, 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 and see all that. Um, you know, today I'd, I'd like to go there. Uh, this gate is built directly across the valley from the Mount of Olives where Jesus spent much time in praying. Matter of fact, you can stand at the top of the Mount of Olives and look in a straight line over the eastern gate and see where the temple once stood. And so, I mean, it's, it's just like a, a straight plumb line. You can... You can draw it right into the different gates that entered into the temple facility. They were all right in a row from the top of the Mount of Olives. The gate was closed in, in 810 AD by the Muslims, and it was reopened by the Crusaders in 1102. Suleiman, the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire, then closed it again in 1541. The reason that it was closed was because the Jews believed that their Messiah would come and deliver them through this gate. Suleiman had it walled, uh, walled up, you know, shut with giant blocks. He also placed a massive Islamic cemetery in front of it. There's thousands of, of graves in front of this uh, Eastern Gate. And the reason for that was if the Jews' Messiah is an Orthodox Jew, he will not defile himself by passing through it. Suleiman was somewhat uh, threatened, intimidated by the longing of the Jews for their Messiah because they said he'll come through this gate. And, uh, but you know, what Suleiman failed to realize is that, you know, whatever Jesus touches becomes clean <laughs> or whatever he touches that's dead becomes alive, <laughs> you know. But I, I, I thought it was fascinating. Once again, I, you know, you can take so many tours and, and there was one guy that, that was an exceptional tour guide and all those thousands of graves in front of the Eastern Gate you know, they haven't been kept up or anything. It was just like, you know, I'm going to do this just because I don't want your Messiah coming in through here. And, uh, and they've never, never kept them up or anything like that. But it's also ironic that a cemetery, you know, you have the Eastern Gate, you have on a, on a ledge, you have the Islamic Cemetery, and then you have a valley and that valley goes up then to the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting that on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, uh, there are approximately 150,000 Jewish graves from over the past 3,000 years. And, uh, you know, they believe that when Jesus comes back and, and to the Mount of Olives, that they'll be the first ones that will be resurrected. It's just really interesting how Jews... You know, they believe in certain things of Scripture, but they don't. They rejected Jesus when he came. The, the whole concept of the Eastern Gate has its beginning clear back in the formation of the tabernacle. You can read that if you want in Exodus chapter 27, verses 13 through 16. Again, Christ would enter this gate 
from the Mount of Olives. Clearly, the East Gate holds special importance. Scripture tells us that there were guards and keepers, as we read in our text here this morning. You know, why would you station a guard or a keeper over a seemingly mundane area? Would God uh, have assigned guards or sentries to watch over and in and a location or a, a place that was seemingly insignificant? I don't, I don't think so. You know, God had a reason for putting centuries there uh, at, at that gate. Um, as a result of the 1949 Armistice Agreement, the city's western half, now this is fascinating. I, I just love this about history. The city's western half came under Israeli control, while its eastern half, containing the old famed city, the city of David, I believe it was, fell under Jordanian control, under King Hussein. Israel acquired the East Jerusalem during the 1967 Six-Day War. Uh, uh, and since then, the entire city has been under Israeli control. Uh, up until that point, it was 1,897 years that Israel did not control it. Uh, I remember growing up when, when as, as a teenager, uh, I, I would have been uh, uh, nine years old. I was born in 58, 67. But I remember we had a neighbor that um, had gone to Israel, him and his wife, to visit, uh, you know, tour the land and so on. And, and he said that things were really tense there. He was there in 1967. And he said things were really tense. And he says when they got on the plane, he said the, 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 the plane did such a vertical climb to get out of uh, missile range as fast as it could. And then the next day, the, the Six-Day War broke out. And uh, so they were very, very fortunate to, to, to get out of there. Um, th th there's a man that's, that's really excels in prophecy that uh, my wife and I went and heard him years ago when he was over in Spokane. His name is Dr. David Reagan. And I read this out of his, his, one of his journals. The next day, I read a fascinating news account about one of the Jewish commando groups that had been involved in the assault on the city. This is in, during 67. The article stated that some members of the group had suggested catching the Jordanian defenders of the city off guard by blowing up the sealed eastern gate. But the leader of the group, an Orthodox Jew, vehemently protested the idea, stating that the eastern gate can only be opened when the Messiah comes. So it was so close to being blown up. When Jordan controlled the eastern side of Jerusalem, I, I read where King uh, 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 Hussein had blueprints drafted up for a five-star motel that would be right next or, you know, in the close proximity of, of the Dome of the Rock, and that he was going to open the eastern gate for the Muslims to access his hotel. But then, you know, the, the, the Six-Day War came and his plans were, were uh, uh, 
you know, were, never came to pass. Uh, I thought it interesting in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 1 through 3, and, and it just goes to show the accuracy of, of God's word. Ezekiel 44, 1 through 3 says, Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looked toward the east, and it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince, the prince he shall sit in to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch and the gate and shall go out by the way of the same. And so Ezekiel was, was prophesying that when this thing is shut up, it's going to stay shut. And even though the, the Israeli commandos thought about blowing it open, you know, to, to surprise the Jordanians, it didn't work. And even though King Hussein thought that he would build a five-star motel inside where the temple area uh, where the temple once stood and, and open it up for Muslims to access the, the, the hotel, it, it never happened because God said it wouldn't happen. He said it's going, to, it's going to be shut and it's going to remain shut. Well, you know, that, that's a little bit of the history of, of this Eastern Gate. Let, let, let's look at some spiritual application here. By the time you have advanced in your Christian faith to this gate, now keep in mind, that it all starts, your, your journey as a Christian all starts at the sheep gate. And then you just come around the, to the fish gate and, and uh, you know, and, and the, the valley gate, the, the dung gate, the water gate, the, or the fountain gate, the water gate, and so on. I, I know I didn't get them in order. But, but there's a progression of maturity in the life of a Christian. And each of these gates is what we're supposed to experience. And then we get to the east gate. And so this, this, uh, this level that, that we're supposed to be at as Christians is that we're supposed to be able to share the blessings of God with others. That's first and foremost. But East speaks of where a new day begins for us. By implication, it speaks of yesterday being gone and God's new purposes coming forth. Where the sun set yesterday in the West, it stays, it always stays behind you as you're looking to the rising of the sun in the east. Looking east carries with it an expectation of something new. And I thought this was so relevant for our, our church here uh, today. But um, it, 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 it carries that expectation or anticipation that, that God's going to do something new. God has promised a new thing in these last days in Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Ye shall not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And I thought it was interesting that if, if it's a new thing, then it has not been seen before. So what we have to be careful about is that we don't try to resurrect a copy of something, amen, that we're pulling out from yesterday. And I see in the, in, in the church world, uh, you know, a lot of people try to do that. They try to, and, and, and some of the old techniques, you know, there was the old gate, I forgot to mention that, and which speaks of the foundational things that never change. But, but I also believe that in a church, there should be some change. 
Amen. There's some things that that simply don't work uh, today that maybe worked yesterday. And it could be simply because of our geographical location. You know, years ago, uh, when, uh, you know, when I got saved, you know, the, the big thing, you know, my wife and I, even though our church really didn't do it, but my wife and I, we would go on door-to-door visitation. We went to our pastor one day and we said, hey, do you mind if we hand out church tracks, you know, ID cards and stuff, you know, and, and as we go door to door, my pastor was just shocked. He says, you're asking me if you can, you know, uh, uh, you know, promote our church by going door to door. Absolutely. You know, and, and so Debbie and I, we would go door to door and, and, uh, and, and we had enjoyed it. You know, we did some things that were different, you know, to try to get into the heart and minds of different individuals. But over the years, and, and even way back then, and it was even before that, Dr. D. James Kennedy, you don't know him, but he was a fantastic, eloquent preacher. He was chancellor, I believe, of Coral Ridge Ministries or uh, Theological Seminary. And, uh, but anyway, he wrote a book on evangelism explosion, and it was a, it was a bestseller. I mean... It was a, a book with a, a format, a syllabus on how you go about doing door-to-door visitation and so on. It was outstanding. I had it for years in my office and tried to implement some of his, his uh, things uh, in uh, Sierra Leone when we were there because it, was for, it, it went all around the world. But I guess I'm saying all that to say this, door-to-door just doesn't work anymore. It simply doesn't. Not here anyway. We've tried it and over the years, and we found out that, you know, because of the dysfunctionality of, of the family, you know, you go knock on a, somebody's door at six o'clock at night and, you know, and one person may be sitting at the dinner table eating while somebody else is watching the TV while it's loud, you know, blaring wide open and nobody has time to sit down and talk with you because so-and-so isn't home from work yet and, or husband or wife or something like that. Families are so dysfunctional. And so you're actually being very intrusive when you, when you try to knock on somebody's door and, and, uh, and try to talk to them about the Lord. It it just hasn't worked here. However, in, in saying that we did uh, over our years, we did have one person that we, we brought in from door to door and that was sister Judy Knudsen. Uh, we handed her a flyer uh, about a revival and she came and gave her life to the Lord and, and died here in this church. And so, you know, that, that made it all worthwhile just having, uh, her get saved. But, but the thing of it is the, the, you know, when, when God says he wants to do a new thing, it's not that it's, it's never been tried before, but if it's new to you, then you run with it. You go for it. Amen. The East Gate speaks of focusing on the light with a spirit-induced expectation of what the Lord will accomplish through His people today, today. Keep in mind that when Christ came, they saw His star in the East. His first coming patterns His second coming from the East in Zechariah 4.4. And his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the East. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof 
toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and, and half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north and half towards the south. I, matter of fact, you can get online and you can see that there is a, it, 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 it's fascinating how God just so designed our planet and everything, but there's a great fault line <laughs> that goes right through the Mount of Olives, you know, kind of like the San Andreas Fault and so on. There's a fault line that, that goes right through the Mount of Olives that's just waiting for Jesus to stand on it. Amen. And uh, so it, it's, it's also interesting to do a study in Scripture, and I would challenge you to do this, regarding the word east in the Bible. You know, Eden was in the east, the Bible says. And after man's disobedience, there was a flaming sword that was put on the east side of the garden. The Red Sea, as my wife uh, testified here this morning, that wind was out of the east that separated the, the waters there. And, uh, and of course, the tabernacle gate was on the east side of the tabernacle, and the list goes on and on. Now, here's a nugget that, that I want you to chew on. And to me, this is profound because it's right down my alley. I wish I had a name of a man that gave me this thought, but I simply don't because I would give him the credit for it. But um, I, I, I so enjoyed it. I've never, I've never seen it in anything else, but it's always been in my, my mode of thinking when it comes to uh, understanding the Scripture. And you'll understand what I'm saying here as I, as I move on. According to Scripture, there were some extreme negative connotations regarding the East. Cain exiled to the East after he killed Abel. People traveled East to build the Tower of Babel. Lot chose East and ended up in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, again, the Israelites were exiled to the east, which was to Babylon. Now, th this is my 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 little soapbox here, and and it, you know th th this is what I simply believe, and I try to institute this when I'm studying scripture. Always remember that culture has an influence on one's perception in movement as well as social life. Now you've all. You've, you've always heard me say that culture has a, a, puts a spin on biblical perspective from our social life. You know, the way we, we handle ourselves socially um, has caused us even more so to rewrite Scripture so that it complements our culture and not our culture taken from Scripture. Are you with me? Once again, when we lived in, in Sierra Leone, we've seen a lot of Scripture come to life because we lived in a society that was more conducive to biblical culture, where in, in the United States, it's the opposite. But I, I, I thought this was interesting, that movement is also um, an interesting perspective when you look at cultural influence. And what I mean by that is, we look at things from our English culture, 
from left to right. That's the way we, we read. That's the way we do everything, from left to right. You know, we go from west to east. But in Hebrew culture, or let me say in Jewish thought, everything went from uh, east to west. They do everything backwards. You read Hebrew from right to left. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's not that the good places were in the West and the bad places in the East. This is what that writer says. But it's all about the direction that you're traveling that makes the difference. Um, the direction that we travel is temporary and not physical. You faced East to see the past, but yet the present. You look east to what's gone before to see God coming from the east. As we get up in the morning and you look for the rising of the sun, you look for God, amen, as he's coming. But when you see him, and this is what's beautiful, he's traveling towards you because remember the rotation of the sun, amen. And if you want to stick with him, you've got to move yourself. Travel toward the west with him. Amen. Which speaks of moving into the future with God. So I hope you're getting that. <laughs> Amen. You know, it, you're, you're looking into the past, but yet from that is where God comes from. And God wants us to bring us from that. Amen. And move us in a direction where God is moving and not get stuck in the things of the past. Or, do you understand me? And so once again, you know, uh, I, I kind of chuckled a little bit, you know, uh, it's Jewish dyslexic thought. <laughs> you know, they, they, they look at things kind of backward than we do. But, but then once again, you know, that is the, the, the people that God chose to reveal himself to and their culture and their language, the Hebrew and the Greek and everything. And so I think it's beautiful if we can just kind of see things from their perspective, it kind of puts a different spin on how you understand and see what's being told in Scripture. Moving on, before Passover, the high priest would bring a selected lamb through the eastern gate while the people gathered. But when Christ entered riding on a donkey, they cheered him with palm leaves and declared Hosanna. Now, many scholars are persuaded that the East Gate then speaks of the return of Jesus Christ. For our Christian life, it shows us the longing that we live, uh, you know, with this hope uh, of his return. I, I, I hope you have that longing for his return. Matter of fact, there is a specific crown that is given to those who, who do long for his return. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Are you longing for the coming of the Lord this morning? Prophetically, this gate is very close to the horse gate. And, and I, I can imagine that 
in light of last week's message, you're, you're, if you remember what was said, your, your mind is probably thinking here uh, in a different direction. But, um, uh, you know, the, the east gate being close to the horse gate because the day of God's wrath ends, you know, the tribulation period ends with the coming of the Lord. We, we already uh, talked about that. When he comes on a white horse and the, and the saints of heaven come down with him uh, on white horses in Revelation chapter 19. But as we studied last week, the horse gate as well reminds us that we are in a constant state of spiritual warfare. That's what the horse gate represented. And it also reminds us of the second coming of Christ the Messiah as he descends on a, on a white horse, amen, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Uh, amen. And so we, we, we understand that. But as we mentioned last Sunday, there are those who believe that Christ's double entry was and will be through this horse gate, simply because that's where the horses went. Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's those that believe that he went in through the horse gate. He's coming in as a warrior. Amen. The second time he comes around, amen, which, you know, uh, that was the purpose of the horse gate. That's where the armies, Saul's armies would come out of this horse gate and go into battle and so on. But the, the, uh, these two gates being each to, you know, being close to each other have the same message. Why? Could it be that when our Heavenly Father says something twice that we should really take note of it? Could that be? Amen. Is he trying to let us know that, hey, this is really serious? Is he trying to help us understand that the focus of our lives must be on the truth of his return? And he's coming very, very soon. And so it's like you get it in two different gates, the horse gate and the eastern gate. You have to understand that Jesus is coming, regardless if, of, of what people will say. Well, you know, and even in the, the epistles, they, Paul said that there'll be many in the last days that'll say, where is the promise of his, of his coming? I've been hearing that for years. I've heard it for years. I've been preaching it for years. But let me tell you something, folks. He said he's coming and he's going to come. He's going to come. Amen. I just lost my mic here. The horse gate and the east gate both teach us to live our lives with eternity as our primary focus and not the things of this world. We are sojourners. We are simply passing through. This is not our home. Always keep that into perspective. This explains why so many times you ever feel like you're out of place? You ever just feel like you just don't fit in? Well, see, that's proof right there. You're living proof that this simply, don't get discouraged because you're, you're, what, what, what's being revealed to you is this really isn't my home then. If you go to different places or, or people just kind of look at you like you fell off the truck or something like that, hey, that's a good thing because you're not of this place. We're to, we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're, not, we're never supposed to feel comfortable here. I, I was chatting with my, my sister this morning, my older sister, Brenda, and, and uh, she said, Mike, what's your take on the way things are going today? And, uh, and of course, you know, it went political right out of the, the gate. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, of course she chimed in and, and she said, it's so sad that they're destroying our country. And, and I said, Brenda, th this is the way I look at it. If, if earth was always nice, we wouldn't desire heaven, would we? And it just kind of got her. You know, I, I, I love it here. I, I, I do. I, I, I love living here. But it's not my home. God's got a higher plan. Amen. We're just passing through. Someday all this will be changed and so on. And that, that's what I live for. That's what I'm, what I'm after. Amen. I'm after his kingdom and not uh, mine. Amen. Or ours. My personal opinion as to which gate Christ will enter when he returns. You know, if you, as we studied last Sunday, the horse gate, man, it fits the narrative of Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16 to the T. I mean, it, it, it just simply does. But however, his entry through the East Gate has a rich history that is steeped in traditional practices and this geographical layout with the Mount of Olives and the location of the temple. The evidence for his entry through the Eastern Gate is far greater than it would be for the Horse Gate. So, you know, whichever one you want to choose is totally up to you, but I don't want to say scholars are split. It's probably three to one or something like that, that, you know, three believe it's the Eastern Gate while one thinks it's the, the Horse Gate. Um, the evidence uh, or other spiritual meaning of this eastern gate is that this is the gate that leads into the temple courtyard and its representation of our entrance into the millennial reign of Christ. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, as Hannah comes to the piano, he shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdoms there shall be no end. When we come down, folks, at the end of the tribulation period, as Revelation chapter 19 states, when we come down, and we go to war, and, and, and I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. I think we're just going to be witnesses to it. When we go to the Battle of Armageddon, we're just going to see it all happen. And, and as it happens and, and unfolds, and after all the, the things are, you know, the, the beast and the false prophet are, are, are sent out into oblivion into the lake of fire and, and Satan is bound when all this is done. And I don't know, you know, of course how our minds are, you know, after the, the, the burying of the dead or however that's going to play out. There's coming a time when Ezekiel said, he's going to go through that gate He's going to, and when he walks through that gate, he's going to 
usher in a thousand-year reign under him, the millennial kingdom. That's why it's still closed today, because he's the only one, regardless of the efforts of man or the uh, expectations of man, it's still shut, because God said it would be shut. But when Jesus comes and when we come with him, we're going to witness that. I just, I just believe that. I believe it's scripture. We're going to see it all unfold and, and be witnesses to that very fact. The Eastern Gate. I'd encourage you to get online and take some of the tours. They're, they're fascinating. They're so fascinating. I toured with one man that... <laughs> He said, I don't know that I'm supposed to be doing this, but, but he had his video camera and he was literally walking through the Muslim graveyard. And he was being very quiet. And, uh, and he went from one end to the other. It was so long, it was about the whole length of the Eastern Wall. But when he got to the Eastern Gate and focused in on that and those foundation stones and so on. Man, it just kind of does something for you. And then he went around to the other side and he, he took a picture of what it looked like from the inside. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Eastern Gate. We thank you for... Lord, the study of the gates of Nehemiah, it's fascinating, it, it, it simply is. I pray that, Lord, that you would help us each to understand, Lord, the, the application, Lord, that as we look to, towards the east, Lord, when the sun is coming up, you're coming towards us. And we need to walk with you throughout the day <laughs> till the sun sets. From beginning to end, Lord, we need to rise with you and set with you. And Lord, there, every day has a, a new anticipation. It should anyway. The world just has their philosophy. Same stuff, just a different day. But that's not so with the Christian. You know, it's a, it's a new day for us. New things, your, your mercies are, are, are renewed every day. They, they are. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, help us to see that. Lord, we're trying to venture out into something and that's new. It's new to us, Lord. And, and Father, we pray that we could just watch you. And as we meet you, Lord, that we would follow you, Lord, through this complicated venture. Lord, it's all about you. It's all about your kingdom. It's not about us. It's all about you. And Lord, help us to always be focused, Lord, upon our, our desires and the expectations that we're to have, Lord, that you're coming. You're just coming. Lord, you didn't come yesterday and today's not over. 
You could very well come today. And if not today, Lord, you'll be here tomorrow. You will. I just believe that. I believe it with all my heart. Lord, everything that we study in Scripture, Lord, everything points to your return. Lord, help us to be ready for that return. Help us to live our lives, Lord, in such a way that, Father, when you show up, that, that Lord, we could be caught away with you and there'd be no rejection or hesitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The altar's open. You're welcome to pray a little bit if you want.